The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. American ADD is to be found when we want to turn on the weight. When they left, line up and wait for the last time in an MD-80. American. American 80 for the last time. Uh, wind 1005, RNAV to B-Park, runway 118 left, clear for takeoff. RNAV B-Park, uh, so takeoff on the left, American 80. You better make it a good one. You're listening to Squawk Eye Dent, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy carrier with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 77 of the Squawk Eye Dent podcast, recorded on the 5th of May, 2021, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's episode, Captain Roger and I are joined by one of Legacy Airlines' newest captains. He has survived furloughs, mergers, and multiple turndowns. He is a former Northern Arizona collegiate drum major, a tuba-playing god, an avid pianist, and he even helped me choose out a quality ukulele not too long ago. His journey in aviation has followed a path not often mentioned. We had the opportunity to fly again recently, where I was able to blackmail him into joining us here today. But before we start our pre-flight for episode 77, I wanted to express our many thanks to Kyle Jansen for joining us as a guest host on episode 76, Ditching, New Strategies, and Comebacks. We enjoyed discussing the evolving airline strategies that we have noticed being explored within the recovering U.S. airline market. Thanks again, Kyle. We look forward to having you again on the show real soon. And here to help us get Flight 77 of the Squawk Ident podcast underway is an exceptional aviator and co-host. He is an award-winning trophy-hoisting tennis champion, a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current carrying air flight instructor, Falcon 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his mobile studios, from his penthouse suite at the Doubletree Hotel in Denver, Colorado where he is fresh off his out-of-country adventure flight sequence to Iceland. Please help me in welcoming back to the show a fantastic co-host, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing? I am hanging in there, Tony. How are you? Uh, You know, I'm hanging in there, too. Uh, You know, we kind of, we missed you on the last show. That was because you were flying your butt off, which is kind of a common theme. We've our listeners know this. It does seem to be the common theme these days. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've been flying kind of heavy, too. I did uh, two sequences back to back, six days of flying, multiple red eyes. And uh, our next guest uh, today uh, flew with me on my very last sequence here, and we had a, a wonderful time on a nice two-day trip. Um, how was your trip? I mean, you had the Iceland adventure, which I mean, we're not talking airline here where you have dispatch filing flight plans for you and you have you know maintenance making sure that all no. the checks have been done on the aircraft you did everything you had to do everything pretty much Is this pretty your first time did everything yeah and it was first time it was um 
quite the experience. And yet at the same time, it was, which is, is good. It was very uneventful, you know, cause in the end, a whole lot of the work that you do is, is on a contingency basis that, you know, if this happens, then we do that. Um, unfortunately in the end, it was very uneventful and you know, we flew from the San Diego area up to the, to the, to the Boston area and then over to Iceland. And if you actually look at the distance, Boston is almost, almost exactly halfway. Huh. And so if you just kind of look at it that way, it's like, okay, well, it's just kind of another flight from, you know, San Diego to Boston, except there's just a whole lot of nothing in between. Yeah. Um, Although, you know, the first, it really, the only half of the flight was um, over water because the first half, I mean, roughly is over the eastern seaboard of Canada. And, you know, in the end, we, we didn't see much of the ground. There was a cloud layer and we flew a flight and, you know, came down and, and landed. And fortunately, that was the extent of it was, was just another flight. The, the biggest difference was the time, was the time, the yeah. time change. And I'm still not recovered from that. Um, yeah, what is the difference there? Is it uh, seven hours? Seven hour time difference, and that's we, we uh, were we were laughing. It's like, what well, uh, the life that we know out in the Pacific, you know, the Pacific time zone. They weren't even waking up until the afternoon over there. Yeah, in Iceland, it was like my phone was. You know, you kind of joke sometimes about my phone going off all the time. My phone was very silent for the first half of the day because everyone was sleeping. <laughs> Nice. But then it's 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 odd, you know. You're going to you're going to sleep, and you're not really sure what time it is. Um, but you're going to kind of sleep at you know ten to midnight. But it's still like early afternoon at home. The whole thing was just surreal, and the length of the trip was kind of was horrible because you were just starting to acclimate, and then we came home. And yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the biggest thing that I'll never forget. That and you know we're towards the beginning of May, and that far north. And it stayed light until eleven o'clock at night. Well, that kind of started... helped a little bit, right? I mean, you have no idea what time it is. I like. <laughs> I know we spent what three or four minutes just talking about time, but it's it was just a surreal experience in terms of what time it was and how light it was and and how even as a pilot and traversing time zones. I mean. You know, going to Hawaii wasn't that big of a deal and going to the East Coast wasn't that big of a deal. But then you put four more hours on top of that and then the North Latitudes. Um, it was just a surreal experience and I'm, I'm still recovering from it. I've yeah. been waking up at four o'clock in the morning, every morning and not, be, not out of choice. Just because you got used to it. Yeah. Just because I, I'm not sure. I think it's just kind of re-acclimating back to yeah. whatever normal is. Now, you're, did you fly into Reykjavik? No, no, no. We flew to a little uh, a little airport in the middle of nowhere. Well, um, Reykjavik is basically you know right is right on the what, west the west coast, uh -huh. and we flew to the north. This little town on the north towards the east side of the island, Kadakureri. Because uh, tight. <laughs> yes, it took me about a week to figure that out, but I, I I dedicated myself to at least trying to say the name right by the time I landed there. And the adventure that, them with uh, my my presence. Did you take the adventure that we were suggesting? Uh, well, kind of. We we <laughs> attempted to. We uh we went what I refer to as whale looking, where we uh went whale went out looking. on a boat looking for whales. Instead but we didn't watch. Watching. 
Yeah. Well, that's what most people call it. But in order to watch, you have to find. <laughs> of which there weren't. It, it, and it was admittedly a little early in the season, and they were very upfront with that before we went. Um, oh, and that kind of turned into an adventure as it, in and of itself because of the ride back. But there were no whales that were really there yet, so it turned into a boat ride which was a beautiful day on the first half. And then the wind kicked up on the way back. And then there were people hanging over the side in the hundred foot boat. And we were, I mean, you're probably talking eight, eight foot, eight to 10 foot seas. Yeah. And it was freezing cold. We got drenched and uh, yeah. And, and you go back to the pub and have yourself a Viking size beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did eat a lot. I will say that. Did you have but, the all famous and traditional meal of slaughter? No. No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> but we looked at pictures. Yeah, you know, if, um, if you're curious. They have a what, lot of sheep up there. What, what, the, what we're talking about, just look up uh, slaughter, uh, Icelandic traditional meal. I believe uh, Sibi and uh, Runar uh, were so gracious to be on the podcast. Uh, almost uh, well, August, back in August of last year. Was it and, that long ago? Well, yeah, because that's when they received their furlough notice oh, that yeah. week, I believe. But uh, yeah, we need to catch up with them again and see how they're doing, our Viking friends over there to the north. Um, but yeah, they they talked all about uh, the traditional meal. I'm not going to gross anybody out, but it's basically a, a cold cut of some kind. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad you made it back. Uh, your adventure was full. And then you flew again after that, right? Yeah, I think today was probably, I guess today was my first flight back after that, um, you know, staying in the western half of the United States, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, so we had three legs today and then just going back home tomorrow. But, yeah. Episode um, 49, Vikings Take Flight of the Squawk Ident podcast, uh, where we have our Icelandic friends from the north give us a little rundown of their journeys. And we do talk about the slotar, the traditional Viking meal of the Icelandic people. All the more for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> Maybe if I go, I'll try it. But, you know, I just want to say thank you again for, uh, for joining us today. I know you've had a very heavy schedule. You're still recovering from that, uh, from that crazy trip. And well, you know, you're you very welcome. Us. And I'm sure that every, you know, our faithful listeners missed me as well. Um, absolutely so I, felt a, I felt a duty to come back for the comedic relief and to give to the airline guys the a hard airline, time come on to give the airline guys a hard time <laughs> i kind of feel like that's my you know i don't know what i'm going to do if i ever go to an airline because then i'll just be one of them but and i hope you come to legacy so that we can hold this every episode and every word above your head for the rest of your career <laughs> <laughs> I know I might I might need to spend a little more time worrying about that <laughs> <laughs> don't burn your bridges ladies and gentlemen <laughs> now we just we just we love Roger well you know now that our pre-flight is complete I'll, I'll give you a little rundown on what I've been doing uh, here uh, in, later in the show but uh, now that our pre-flight is complete let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines flight 77 of the Squawk Ident podcast is officially underway. Today's guest started his journey in aviation after graduating with a music degree from Northern Arizona University. After graduation, he was accepted into the Abinicio program for Mesa Airlines back in 1998. With just over 280 hours of total time under his belt, he was selected to fly for Mesa Airlines in the year 2000. 
That later led him to a promising job opportunity at an airline we hear on the show called Cactus Air. Joining us from his compound deep in the heart of Arizona, please join us in welcoming to the show, Captain Jerry Quinn. Jerry, how you doing? Great, Tony. How you doing? Doing fantastic. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I definitely appreciate it when you extended me the uh, invitation on our last trip. Uh, Yeah, terribly exciting and uh, happy to uh, share my experience and hopefully it's uh, it's not as as uh, as boring as uh, it uh, it can sound. <laughs> no, not at <laughs> all. Exciting. You know, no, we try to make you and I flew together um, back in December, I think, was it uh, 2000? And uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, we had a great time. It was we Christmas. A... It was Christmas. It was Christmas Day. Uh, uh, Melikimikalikimaka. I think was right. as we flew to Hawaii. Yeah. And uh, I do have to thank you for helping me uh, remember the ins and outs and intricacies of uh, equal time point as, as far as it pertains to engine failures and or medicals. Uh, you know, uh, Tony was able to bring me up to speed because I hadn't uh, done any Hawaii flying for a while. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, Tony, very much. No, it's my pleasure. You know, <laughs> and we, we hit it off. Uh, you were telling me about your background in, in music. You know, you were you were showing me pictures from uh, when you were in the drum line and the band um, back at Northern Arizona. And I was telling you that, you know, I was thinking with COVID and the restrictions and the fact that we're kind of limited on what we can do, you know, the crew hanging out at the hotel or in Hawaii is kind of not something that is a norm anymore. And I was thinking about learning an instrument. Why not? And a ukulele is small and compact and I can throw it on my my bag of tricks there on my rollerboard and bring it with me. And you said, well, I have one. And you were making suggestions on which one I might consider purchasing. And sure enough, uh, through a lot of the leads that you gave me, I found something that I liked. And now I'm a proud owner of a, a very nice ukulele that I've been tickling here for the past few months, trying to learn a few things by watching YouTube. And, and I have you to thank for that because I, I don't know mm-hmm. if I would have taken the leap uh, so willingly. Beautiful. I'm glad you did it, and uh, I'm sure you'll your level of expertise will exceed mine pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> I highly doubt I that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I haven't. You might have uh, an overinflated view of our friend here. <laughs> uh, you we know, will see. I, I'm if no, we do fly uh, together, we, we're gonna we're gonna bring them. We're gonna bring them. Uh, come on, man. <laughs> that sounds sounds great. Yeah, the next time we fly together, we agreed that we would text each other and go, "Hey, uh, we're flying together. Bring your uke. Jam session, buddy." <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so, yeah and then meanwhile the, the flight attendants are back there going who's killing cats up in the cockpit <laughs> you know it'd be really funny if you guys had them you guys both were playing during the boarding process if the two pilots were up at the boarding door and you guys are both uh, playing a ukulele duet Serenading that our would passengers? be something different that would be something different yeah this is not Southwest, all right buddy. it would be different and <laughs> that uh, would be a I viral most video of, they might be they might turn around and just head right back up the jetway always see. a possibility we can change the, the lyrics to popular songs and talk about their flight today. Welcome aboard. We're going to Buffalo. You know, I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, I heard your, I listened to your intro there and uh, it just, it makes me feel old. Uh, starting in aviation, what, 20, 23 years ago now. That's, that's crazy. And yet, and yet, Captain, you're younger than me. So what does that make me? 
<laughs> I said it, or you said it. I didn't say it. Uh, well, you didn't have to. I got you. I got you. I'm picking it up. I'm picking it up. So let's talk a little yeah. bit about our last trip, just to kind of uh, reminisce a little bit. Um, I, I saw your your name popped up, uh, in, like kind of last second, like a day prior. Um, was that because you're on reserve and and they gave you the trip, or how did that work? Yes, I am. I, I'm squarely on reserve uh, now. Um, as you mentioned, I'm. I'm pretty new captain. I'm, uh, you know, not new at the airline. Um, I kind of delayed an upgrade a little bit, uh, for some quality of life uh, issues, but, uh, uh, I live in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And, uh, now I find myself commuter to, to Los Angeles. And, uh, I, I, I waited until I could hold what we call long call reserve, which gives us a little more time, uh, lead time on our trips when they do call us out. And they called me for that one. And uh, believe it or not, uh, they will be calling me sometime today. I've been assigned a trip for tomorrow. Ah. So I had just two days off. <laughs> and uh, I've pretty much resigned myself to the phone, probably ringing every day that I'm on call. It's just, it's starting. It, you know, COVID was a nice break. And it was a nice break for me because I find myself uh, able to hold a line. Mm which I, I wouldn't by, uh, you know, by any you know, measure of seniority, but I think a lot of guys were bidding reserve and, think, and hoping to not fly. So uh, most of last year I was holding line and I'll take it, you know, cause it uh, enabled me to control some of my destiny and uh, make some money. Yeah. But uh, ever since the holidays, I'm squarely back on reserve uh, for the time being and, and uh, yeah, we'll be flying. Well, yeah, maybe we'll see each other more. Yeah, and and you mentioned something that's quite interesting. I'm just give a little uh, explanation to some of our listeners that you know there there are different reserve rules for every airline out there. Um, every operator has a contract, and you know some people are on 24 hour reserve where they can call them at any time, and you have a a particular amount of time to get to the airport to be ready to go to sign in for your trip. Uh, over at Legacy Airlines, where we are, we have short call reserve where. The time is not really written in stone, but the unspoken word, at least at Los Angeles, is that you have about under three hours, two to three hours uh, maximum to get to the aircraft to be ready to be uh, you know, signed in and good to go. And then there's long call reserve, which is preferred for most people because then you have, what is it, 13 hours or 12 hours before you have to make it? Uh, it's 12. 12, it's 12, hours. 12 hours on long call. Yeah. And the... Uh... I forget the term they use for the short call, like promptly available or something like that. Right. The company does tack on their expectations for an hourly thing, which we deal with. I was a professional reserve for many, many, many years. Uh, I think I've been at, we call it what we call a legacy um, for a total now of uh, 16 years. Hmm. And uh, I'd say 13 of that was, was reserve. So I got uh, very, I knew, I knew the ins and outs pretty well, uh, yeah. you know, day in and day out. But uh, uh, yeah, 12 hours long call uh, here. And uh, all they, although they do, when they give you the long call reserve, your guarantee, monthly guarantee is a little bit less, at least here, mm. um, than it would be on the short call. Yeah. Uh, which, so you have like a minimum month. So even if you fly one flight in the entire bidding cycle of 30 days or whatever it is for the month, then you're still going to get paid your minimum monthly guaranteed pay. Absolutely. So yeah. short um, call, you get at what, 2.5 hours more a month than if you were long call, something like that? I think it's three. three I, th- I think it's 76 hours guarantee on the short call and it's 73 hours guarantee on the long call. Okay. Um, 
and it's it it kind of stinks to take that kind of a hit to do the long call. But I obviously living in Phoenix and, and doing reserve for Los Angeles, that's the only way I can make that work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm happy to have it. And you mentioned you know they're going to call you because they've already signed you a trip, and you know people are like, well, yeah. wait a minute, if they didn't call you, how do you know that they're going to sign? Well, because we have an app that the companies, oh, yeah. you know, has this what they call CCI app crew. Uh, check-in app, I think. I don't know what it's called, but um, you can look on there and it'll, it'll, sure enough, it'll populate and that could change two or three times before they call you, they physically call you. That's your official notification. But for the most part, you can kind of get a notification going, oh, your schedule has changed and you can see you have the trip even before they notify you. And as long as they mm-hmm. give you, you know, they don't want to interrupt your your rest period, but as soon as they have to call you, they'll give you a call and give you a message if they have to and say, well, okay. Yeah. I'm probably going to call them and just tell them that I know about the assignment because I asked them and they'd usually do wait till close to the 12 hour mark to call you and assign you. And it's a red eye tomorrow night. So I'd rather them not calling me, you know, 10, yeah. 11, 12 or whenever that might be. Right. Like just, I'm going to call them and tell them I know about it. So perfect. Yeah. Four day trip and the red eye, you know, so you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm going to be flying a lot and, you know, that's, I'm setting my expectation now that I'll just be, it's going to be a lot of flying from here on out. You yeah. Know? Yeah. The, uh, the niceness of, uh, being paid to stay at home on reserve on call, uh, I think is slowly going away now that we're starting to see these numbers creep up and, and be steady. Um, I know that, uh, the past two days, uh, when we were flying together, every flight was pretty close to full. I don't think we had any flight that had, you know, a row open anywhere yeah 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 the loads are remaining high i think the summer is going to be very busy uh for our airline and other legacies for everybody for that matter um that's good yeah good very good and and speaking of our last trip we had a two-day it started out in los angeles ended up going to dfw in the middle of the day it was one of the first times i didn't either start with a red eye or finish with a red eye so i was very (laughs) grateful and uh, we had a three-hour sit at dfw uh, we're able to get some food and, and make some phone calls. And, and then we are off to New Orleans in the evening and a mm-hmm. uh, little bit of weather in route. And, uh, we kind of were keeping a close eye on it. We had plenty of fuel. I believe we had ferry fuel on that one. So for those that don't know what ferry fuel is, it's when you, when you need a certain amount of fuel for men fuel to get to your destination and be legal with all the FARs that are, uh, required to be, um, followed so you have your 45 minutes reserve any alternate fuel you might need and dispatch ad captain ad there's so many hold fuel so many fuel contingencies that we plan on uh, for these flights and we actually had almost double the fuel we needed because of whatever economic reasons the cost of fuel maybe in louisiana was a little higher than the cost of fuel in dallas so though for whatever reason now you have to keep in mind dispatchers run a formula and that added weight of all that fuel increases your fuel burn and your fuel economy. So you have to, the, the cost savings have to outweigh the added uh, fuel burn and the decreased performance of the aircraft being heavier than it normally would be. So if that, all the metrics are in place, then you ferry fuel down to your destination and you basically don't have to fill up uh, for the return leg. So that was, I think, yeah. the case, and so we had plenty of fuel. Well, that was, yeah, that was a very good thing too. I saw that, and I, you know, we would obviously review the weather, and uh, uh, for the before the uh, the flight, and, and saw that, 
And, uh, you know, there was what thunderstorms in the vicinity, and I'm not quite sure if it was on the field enough to even make us have, you know, we weren't even required an alternate, but, uh, but like you said, probably for fuel costs in, you know, New Orleans, I I have no idea. Uh, we had a whole lot of uh, extra fuel on board and I was totally happy with that because I was going to probably be calling them and adding a little bit of captain additional fuel just, uh, you know, for whatever contingencies, because there was a, you know, a decent line of thunderstorms moving into New Orleans and, uh, yeah. I'd rather have I'd rather have that extra fuel in the tanks than not. So, yeah, happy to have it. And Roger, do you guys, when you're in a Part 91 operation and you're going into a place like our scenario was uh, was VFR, there was no alternate required, but there was a line of thunderstorms, you know, miles south of the field, moving from west to east, and these line of thunderstorms could have easily, you know, unforecastedly changed direction and cover the field. They were close enough. Um, do you guys ever go with, you know, more fuel than you need, or do you top off the tanks every time? What's the, the normal thought process for a part 91 operation? Uh, well, we certainly don't top the tank off hardly ever, um, for, for multiple reasons. Um, you know, we have the advantage. We, again, we don't have dispatch. We have you know, maybe you pilot's you know, discretion. one captain or we have maybe two captains and it's pilots is here. I mean, we're the ones that put the fuel order in. Um, and then we hand over the credit card and say, here you go. And we're not <laughs> responsible for paying. Nice. Um, so typically I'm actually probably the most, like a lot of guys will put, will put on a fair amount of extra gas. Um, I probably run it leaner than most other people. I don't know why. Um, I just, but in the case, like you guys were talking about, in the case that where you've got potential issues with weather, then we'll go ahead and put put more fuel on. And to be honest with you, nobody in our operation at Part 91, um, in most Part 91s, no one's going to know the difference. Yeah. Well, we had yeah, a that's that's good. We had a, a kind of an exciting uh, turn down there. It was uh, my leg to fly down there from Dallas, and uh, we were coming in, and there was a no tam issued uh, for the longer runway that had an ILS associated with it. It was shortened and we had the landing distance available and we ran the numbers. And although the winds were kind of, you're splitting hairs between, was it runway? I don't even remember. Was it two and two? Two zero. Two zero? It was two zero. And one one or something like that? Uh, yes. Yeah. So we, we wanted to use an ILS to one one, but they were advertising RNAV or visuals to runway two to zero. So initially in cruise, uh, I had briefed the RNAV to runway two zero. And then we were kind of got to talking about it and like, well, you know, why use the short runway when we can use the longer runway? And currently the conditions on the field are not bad. The winds actually didn't really benefit you from landing on one runway or the other. Why don't we just prep for the longer runway, even with the shortened NOTAM? So I said, okay. So I rebriefed, um, and Jerry was very um, attentive to how I was setting up the FMS or the box or the FMGC, however you want to call it. And we briefed that one. And then as we started our descent, the uh, controller, you know, we asked, hey, can we have runway uh, one one for with the ILS? Um, and they're like, well, I don't think they can use that because of the displaced threshold. And then we start thinking about it and the wheels were turning and we're like, oh yeah, I guess the glide slope might not be coincident and who knows. So 
we didn't really quite look into it enough because it was basically VFR. And, uh, and I said, yeah, no, we can't give you that. Um, it'll be the RNF. So fine. I quickly, uh, you know, as we were starting our descent, I just said, okay, I'll just go back to our original briefing. And I put in, you know, the two zero approach in the FM GC. They gave us direct to the first fix, had everything set up. We made sure that the briefing, all the numbers were still applicable. And we went direct to that fix. And as we got a little closer, we were cleared the RNAV approach. We were in VMC conditions. We could see the runway. But then I noticed that on my PFD that the ILS light or indicator was blinking yellow. I'm like, wait, we're not shooting an ILS. We're shooting an RNAV. What? So I voiced this to Jerry. I said, what's, what's this ILS thing? And he goes, oh. He goes, did you accidentally put in the ILS to that runway instead of the RNAV? I'm like, I don't think so. So he says, you know, because we were both, our eyes were both down. And the autopilot was flying, but our, our eyes were both down. And he said something I really much, uh, very much appreciated. He goes, you know what? I'll take care of it. You fly the aircraft. I said, you're right. My aircraft. Yeah. And I brought my eyes back to the attention of the PFD and the MFD and, and all my instruments. And, and I had the runway visually, so I quickly put it into heading mode and started navigating using kind of a lower level of automation. The autopilot was still coupled. And he goes, okay, it's all set up. So I recoupled the approach. And sure enough, we executed a relatively flawless approach, but it got busy really fast. And it was because of an error that I made. Now, I'm the first one to admit, if I make a mistake, I made a mistake. And I tried my best at every time to learn from it. And I got to say, Jerry was very um, kind about it. He wasn't like, oh, what did you do? You know, because it could... The stress level, and I've flown with guys like that, the stress level can shoot up exponentially in a very short period of time during a critical phase of flight. And I think that could lead, when the, the threat and error management model isn't really followed, to some major errors, you know, potentially an accident. So I was very appreciative that we all remained calm and we kind of fixed the, the little flub that I made and, you know, everything was, was okay. Yeah, no, you did a great job. I mean, uh, we talked about it a little bit afterward, how that happened. I think, you know, we, we had done a, a nice brief uh, well up in cruise and discussed everything we were going to do. But obviously, when you get down on with approach control and, uh, you know, you first talk to them and you're only like 30 miles away, uh, you know, and they start assigning you something different than you expected. Now, you know, you're going to, you know, have to quickly change your plan. Uh, you don't have to, but uh, I think we felt comfortable enough We'd already talked about two zero and the RNAV that they were offering to that runway, just uh, rethrowing that one in there. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was up. I don't know why they. Uh, I guess I surmised the way the, the reason they didn't give us the longer runway is uh, I don't I don't know if they they thought felt it wasn't good enough for VFR or clearing us for a visual to that runway, but obviously they didn't have maybe any approach to offer. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of what their rules are, but uh, they said two zero and you know, it was fine and it was, it was safe. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'll tell you what, I've been flying the Airbus for a long time and I can see how with a newer person to the plane in that situation, how it could get dicey. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy in that situation to both have your heads down and looking at a box, try to set it up. And if you forget that, Oh my God, I'm an aviator. I can just turn this autopilot off and, I see the pappies and I see the runway threshold right there. 
I can fly to it, you know? Right. Um, so well yeah, said. Yeah, well said. Yes, exactly. You, and, and you did that. And it was just me, a couple of keystrokes changing, you know, changing over to the RNAV from, I think a localizer was in there and then just hitting a few buttons. And then there, that's a backup for us you know, to get to the runway. Yeah. So yeah, no big deal, but yeah, I can see how, you know, not knowing maybe the box or how quickly you can do that thinking things are going to be really screwed up, but uh, you know, yeah, it was handled. And that's what threat and error management is, is, uh, is trapping errors. You know, we all make errors. We all make many errors and we know that they're going to be made. Uh, the idea is to trap them and give us many different opportunities to trap those errors, you know, and I think obviously that one was a blinking ILS light, you know, so automation right there helped us trap that error. Yeah. You know, in the end, it, I mean, it was visual conditions. The runway was dry. We could see the weather out to the south and southwest, uh, and we actually the aircraft in front of us, I believe, asked for an alternate mist procedure in the event of a mist because I believe the mist approach procedure had you turning into the weather, and they didn't want to do that. So, and we sure. heard that, and we were like, "Oh, they they asked for an alternate mist in case we go mist. We'll probably ask for the same thing." Um, but yeah, it was it was VFR. It was totally, but yeah, back to the lowest level of of automation possible if if you can to. Get, you know, realigned, and that's exactly what happened. I know Roger, you know, sees this quite a bit in his instructing and in his, uh, especially in the in the King Air, trying to get people recurrent, and they're doing instrument approaches in a simulator, and and I mean, people can get overwhelmed really quickly. I have to laugh because it, this is like you see it all the time, and listening to your story, I, I was on mute, and I'm laughing over here. It's like Captain Tony. Well, let me set the stage for you. There we were. <laughs> And we had a blinking light, and I saw the runway. So, okay. land. So, there you go. <laughs> That's the end of the story. End of but story. instead, we've got two pilots, two highly qualified, experienced pilots, who both, instead of clicking the autopilot off to fly to the runway that they see down there, we've got both of our heads down so that we can program the FMS so that, God forbid, we don't need to fly our own airplane. And it just makes me kind of laugh, because in the end, you know, the lower level of screw the lower level of automation, turn it off and fly to the runway that you see right down there. Yeah. But it happens all the time is that people it's, it's almost kind of like we've spent so much time um, training, training people to not screw up and let the, let the, the box fly the airplane that it's like, well, we better let the box fly the airplane and then things can kind of start you know, the snowball starts rolling downhill yeah. in, in a little bit of your guys' scenarios. Like, well, we, we got we to gotta figure this out so the airplane knows where to fly because we don't, we're not supposed to fly the plane on our own yeah. um, to, to such a large degree. And that's one thing that, you know, from, you know, my, my brief, you know, comparatively brief airline experience that that's what they hammer into you. It's like, don't fly the airplane. I have to turn the autopilot on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I appreciate about our training now at, uh, our, our legacy carrier is uh, I think they realize that. I mean, we are so automation dependent and uh, we use it day, you know, it's, it's, that's all we, we do for when things are going well that, uh, you know, all myself, you know, after doing it for years and years and years, feel like I've forgotten how to fly. You know, you don't feel comfortable in that situation. So they've added that to the training. And I believe on every, every, uh, 
recurrent training we do, we get in the simulator, it'll be a scenario where it's like, all right, you're going to do just a simple pattern without anything. You know, you don't have yeah. any automation. I think you, you turn the auto pedal off, you turn the, you know, the flight director off, you turn it all and just, you know, your auto throttle is, is off and see, just remember how to fly a plane, you know, and it's great to get back to that because we all should know how to do it. We all know how to do it. it. You know, it comes back and we need to see it and know that we can do it before we start just deciding to tinker in a box. And so we don't have to do it, but so, yeah, yeah you know, I get it. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting subject. And there was a, this was a long time ago that um, Airbus was a three thirty that crashed off of Brazil on the way back to Europe. There was a great article in vanity fair. I think it was, about ha- about automation and you know them you know having some issues with the pedos and then them trying to fly the airplane but it it basically the gist of it was is that we spent so much time having all these mistakes and we're going to push automation on the pilots automation 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 but what that did was that when things go really wrong and then we have to fly the airplane we've flown the airplane so little that we don't know how to respond to it but then the response to that is well the pilots can't fly we got to push automation, automation, more automation. And it's, mm-hmm. it's almost like a negative feedback loop where we're trying to shove all this automation on, but then that's going to degrade the skills when they're, they're kind of needed the most. And it, mm-hmm. I never really thought about that, but you know, there is a lot of truth to it too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I had to prove to myself that I could still fly um, back in the, uh, the mid-2000s. We went, one of my downturns was uh 2008 the great recession and i got furloughed and uh you know faced with what am i going to do i had a, had a couple opportunities that went away uh numerous jobs fell through <laughs> at different times it was a very bad time for me as a, a furloughed airline pilot but uh one of the things i was going to do is was uh, go back and fly a, a 1900d um and it was i had swallowed my pride as a big airbus driver you know to go back to something like that and, and be paid so little, but I was happy to do it because there was nothing else right at the time. And uh, I needed to stay current. But one of the things was, you know what? I trained back in the day uh, when I was younger to fly in 1900 and I never got to. Uh, and I was eager to fly it because all my uh, friends and when I was in flight school, I'd talked, spoken so highly of that plane. Um, and it was a company called Great Lakes. I'm sure you've you both heard of uh, Great Lakes. Um, I swallowed my pride and I, I got hired and went there and I was eager to see if I could still fly. Um, having flown Canada Air, you know, regional jets with the glass. And then of course the Airbus, which is a whole new level, you know, with an auto throttle that's doing its thing. Um, but I, I can tell you that it does, it comes back. It comes back very quickly, you know, getting in that six pack again, and uh, you know the RMI needle and the NDB and and just <laughs> doing it all uh, without an autopilot. You know, it took me you know a week or, you know or so to feel comfortable, but it did. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I'm telling everybody out there, you know, if you can all fly, <laughs> get out there and do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we had this little bit of an adventure on our last leg, you know, where we kind of it got busy the last ten minutes of the flight. Of course, at the most critical time, that's always when it happens and you know we handled it very well um and we got on the ground the was raining off and on but pretty much the weather was staying south of the the city the town so here we were in the big easy and we got in at at a relatively decent time it was it was dark but 
still kind of the night was was early enough to where we could go out and get a meal. You know, can you believe it? At, at post COVID times, I mean, we're not really out of COVID times, but we can actually go and get a meal together as a crew, and and we did. Uh, we went downtown on Bourbon Street and took a walk. Uh, I was actually pretty impressed at how many people were down there. What'd you think, yeah. Jerry? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you the truth. I um, I still have not experienced uh, Bourbon Street the way it's meant to be. I've only been there twice now. You know, they've been overnights. But the first one was smack dab in, in the middle of uh, big COVID lockdown and no bars open and, and uh, went without with a, a flight attendant crew that was all getting furloughed uh, back this at the end of the summer and took them out to eat. And we, we had a good labor, but they, you know, they told me, obviously, <laughs> you're not seeing Bourbon yeah. Street the way it's meant to be seen. And uh, even after this particular overnight, I still say that I probably have not seen Bourbon Street the way it's meant to be seen. It was it was a lot busier than the first time. I mean, yeah. bars were open, the music was loud, there was people, but it certainly wasn't shoulder to shoulder people. Um, you know, it was sparse. I, I, I'd consider maybe it got better later on because we didn't. Uh, we, we, were, we, were, well. we were done pretty early. <laughs> we're old men. <laughs> yeah. no, but we had a good time. We ate at a, a really cool restaurant I wanted to mention. It's your, your second time eating there. You ate there last time. Yeah. And through your yeah. recommendation, we went there. Uh, it was nice. A place called Mondo's right there on Bourbon Street. Uh, Mambo's. Um, Mambo's. Mondo's. Mondo's, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mambo's with a B. With a B? Like Mambo Bravo. number five? Exactly. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> uh and yeah, then we went to uh, or walk around just to kind of see the sites and the architecture and all the, the French Quarter. And, and then we ended up at the Bourbon Street Drinkery. Now, I've been there a few times. Uh, live music. It was, I, I think it was great. Uh, we were people watching and there was definitely some people that had a few too many Drinks. I feel bad for the lady who was probably going to be exhausted because all she did was run back and forth from the front of the <laughs> bar to the back of the bar to the front of the bar to the back of the bar. <laughs> yeah. Her friends were kind of keeping an eye on her, just letting her, you know, burn <laughs> that candle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely a good time, some good music. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this before on the podcast is that, you know, every once in a while, you do get a decent overnight, decent layover with a good yeah. crew and you get to go out and hear some music and meet people and eh, it's great. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Take advantage. Take advantage of the good ones. And there's bad ones, not going to lie, but uh, if you got a good place and you got a good amount of time, take advantage. You know, I've, uh, I was discussing it with the, uh, the last first officer. I think I flew with, you know, how through the different airlines I've been at and how much time I've been there, you know, the, the attitudes have changed. And I think it's just because I've gotten older, you know, that we don't, we don't do as much, uh, as we used to, um, former airline. The question wasn't whether or not you're going to go out and have dinner or get drinks. If you have enough time to do something like that. Uh, the question was, where are we going? You know, yeah. what time are we meeting? You know? And it was like, we're all, you know, just, it's a given. Uh, yeah. When you get, when you get a little older and you're at the legacy and everybody's a little bit older, there's not as much going on in that respect. Uh, but you know, if you can, and you have the opportunities to, you know, take advantage of them while you're yeah. out. It's those moments that really are the ones you're going to remember when you're in retirement. It's not all those mm -hmm. hundreds and thousands of hours of, you know, flying along. 
But uh, yeah, our day two was relatively uneventful as well. And the only thing I wanted to speak about is the fact that uh, we ended up going through Phoenix and then off to Los Angeles. And, you know, I, I we talked about it. You were like, yeah, don't worry about getting us there quickly because there's just no way for me to commute back home. And then we had this discussion about commuting and, and how it sucks and really is a different career when you don't have to commute. Um, I've been fortunate enough and unfortunate enough to to have both uh, commuted for over a decade. And now, you know, past, what, four or five years, four years, I've not had to. So, um, so I, I made my best effort possible to get us into Los Angeles early, which we did. We landed a bit early, but you ended up having to to get a hotel, you know, it, it sucks, Yeah, but well, you know, it, it, it is what it is. You know, you, you choose that, you know, if you decide to live somewhere else besides your base or sometimes, <laughs> sometimes your base changes underneath you. I understand that, but I I've been fortunate enough in my career, 21 years now that 20 of them, I'd say maybe 19 have been living in the domicile and driving to work every day. Yeah. And, uh, it's spoiling. It's, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, through a couple different airlines, uh, living in the Phoenix area and, and just getting to drive and drive to my training sessions too. We had, a both of those airlines had training in the Phoenix Valley oh. and I could just drive, <laughs> drive there. And, yeah. you know, now under you know, legacy here, driving to a different city to go to training and, and obviously, Commuting to LA, I, I did it to myself, uh, choosing to be based in LA, leaving Phoenix uh, to upgrade. And it's a choice you got to make, you know, quality of life, or if you want to, you know, move seats or, you know, have, have the money. And it was, I was ready, uh, having spent the better part of uh, 14 years sitting in the right seat um, yeah. of the Airbus. I was ready for, ready for that move. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But the commute, it, it is what it is. You know, you, you got to, you got to do it if you're gonna if you're gonna choose the upgrade route. And Phoenix to LA is not that bad. It's normal times. There's a lot of flights. Granted, they do get full, and I've heard some stories. But uh, I, uh, a former airline commuter airline that I used to work at, um, when I decided to go ahead and upgrade there, it was a much longer commute. <laughs> It wasn't by choice. It wasn't by choice. I was actually a quality of life guy back then, living in Phoenix, waiting until I could be a CRJ captain in Phoenix, which was actually kind of a more senior position. And I got awarded it. And when I was in training, they turned around and, you know, I think one of our other domiciles or bases uh, was shrinking with a bunch of senior guys. It may have been Denver and they were all getting displaced and they all coming back to Phoenix, which yeah. was, you know, their next choice. And I got flushed out before I even started. I'm in training. I've accepted training. I'm in training. And they say, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to uh, go back to the right seat to remain in Phoenix? Or you can continue to upgrade and you'll be in Nashville or Washington, D.C., Dulles. And uh, I could already taste taste the, the fourth strike and the money. And I was there. I'm like, I guess I'm going to do that. And I actually chose Dulles because my mother and stepfather at the time were living in the D.C. area. So I didn't need to get a crash pad, nice. but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I, I did across the country commute for the better part of a year. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Never again. That was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Now I did that but, one myself from LA to New York. 
That's right. I remember you telling me a little bit about that. Yeah, that was eight months of hell. (laughs) I mean, the flying was fun and the experience was was fun. I'm glad I had the experience, but man, the quality of life uh, that that really suffered, the family suffered uh, on Mm -hmm. that. You know, we are really having a good time having this conversation about uh, what we've been up to. And I do want to get into your journey. And we're going to do so right after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Uh, we're talking today to uh, Captain Jerry from Legacy Airlines, and we've been talking about all the little things that we've been going through with uh, flight schedules and uh, you know threat and error management issues that we were able to uh, fly the airplane at its lowest level of automation for a moment to correct issues uh, that I made on the flight line and uh, some of the, the issues that we're seeing in today's marketplace. Now we're going to dive into Jerry's journey, which, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show today because we kind of talked about this the first time we flew together last year, and then we flew again last week uh, and kind of brought all those topics of discussion back up. And I really found it interesting that that your journey is not quite standard. It's, you know, the mm-hmm. the path you took was a little unique. Um, and sure. you know, thank you for for agreeing to share that with us. But let's start at the beginning. What <laughs> what sparked this passion for aviation? How old were you when you first decided? Oh, look, airplane. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, that's going to be typical to most pilots. I have a really young age. I loved aviation. You know, I need everything about it. Um, I really liked military aviation. That was really what I was looking at, you know, through really young, you know, grade school years, I loved making the model jets and, and going to air shows and everything there was to know about military aviation. I was, I was looking into it and I thought about going to the air force Academy when I was in, I think I was still in like fifth or sixth grade at that point. Um, but then somewhere along the lines, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to be um, a pilot, you know, at least not in the military. Uh, Cause I have asthma. Uh, I've, been an asthma sufferer my whole life. You know, it's never stopped me from doing anything in my life, but it's been there. You know, I can't, uh, I can't deny it. I'm not going to you know, lie about it. Uh, take, uh, approved medications for it, you know, now obviously. Um, but yeah, it back then I thought, okay. And, and that, is, that is the case, you know, an asthmatic, uh, an asthma condition is going to eliminate you from going into the military and, and flying military, uh, you know, aircraft. So it kind of just went away. Uh, somewhere along the lines, I thought I'd maybe want to do it being an, an aeronautical engineer, um, but that wasn't you know terribly a love. And you just you, you grow and you start learning you know, to, to do other things and other things that interest you might have. And, and music was one through junior high and high school. And at some point, I made the decision that I was going to study music and, and uh, on my way to being an educator. That's what I was going to do. I was going to be a high school band director. Uh, and I made the choice. And aviation was way out of my mind at that point. It was 
something that I liked when I was a kid, yeah. but had gone away. Uh, and what did I do? I mean, I got scholarships and um, studied music at a four-year school here in Arizona, Northern Arizona University. Mm-hmm. And really, I liked what I was doing. I think I dropped the education part of my music after about a year, uh, realizing that <laughs> I don't think I want to be at least a, like a public school educator. I think, oh, I'd really like to teach college. You know, that was more you know, respected and you know, I'll be a college professor. And so I dropped music education, which entailed student teaching and all the rest, and and just studied music, uh, music performance, uh, playing the tuba, which I did. And I think it wasn't until I mean, my, about my junior year, I started realizing there's, there's a lot of people that want to do exactly what I want to do, and a lot of competition. And again, the pay is not it takes a while to get to a level where you're going to make, make decent pay, you know, as you know, a collegiate educator and uh, the list is long. Everybody wanted to do it. So I started thinking hard. I'm like, you know what, maybe I should be looking into something else. And, you know, being, I guess, pragmatic, you know, at a young age about really what's going to make me happy in life. You know, I hate to say it, but I wanted to make a decent living is one part of it. Sure. And I've obviously wanted to choose something that I like to do as well. And I was finding that I, I think I was going to be more frustrated uh, in music than anything and starting to look for something else. Uh, and then it just, it just hit me, you know, that aviation was there and I'd loved it from when I was a kid. And I, I, don't even remember the conversation I had with somebody that I'm like, I think I could be a pilot. I could be an airline pilot in this day and age. You don't have to be a military pilot. You can go through commuter airlines and, and, and uh, building time and that way to get to a, a major carrier. And um, you can have asthma too. It's, it's, not, it's not a special issuance. It's nothing special on your medical. I just have to check the box that I have it. They, you know, now they have this day and age made it a little more difficult on the hoops I have to jump through, which uh, is unfortunate. But no, it's, it, that's no problem at all. But once I realized I could, I just, I just jumped right in. Um, I started looking into flight schools. I'm like, I'm going to continue to get this degree. I, I had my senior year to go, I think, uh, for my four-year degree in music. And then I'm going to look into flight schools and see how I can make a career uh, and try to get to that point of being an airline pilot. Um, graduated with my bachelor of music in instrumental music performance over at NAU. And at that time, I had already looked into flight schools. And there was one particular one that wasn't too far from where I was. I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is northern Arizona. Uh, and Arizona has a lot of training, uh, a lot of schools, you know, a lot of, it's, it's, a, it's one of the big places people come to train, but not too far from where I was in Flagstaff was Farmington, New Mexico, um, just on the other side of the, the Navajo nation there in the four corners area, um, base airlines, there were, their headquarters was there at that time. And they had a small flight school. And I remember hearing about it from somebody, I think I worked at Dillard's with whose husband had gone through the school and now was a 1900 first officer for Mesa and based in Flagstaff and uh, looked into the program and it was, it was right up my alley. Um, It was, I basically, I had a four-year degree. I didn't need to go get more traditional schooling. I needed my ratings. Yeah. uh, And I needed to try to get to an airline as quick as possible. You know, that's what everybody really aims to do, I think. And that school was there. It's called, I think at the time, unfortunately, it's not there anymore. And even if it was the opportunity that I got, you can't do anymore with some of the, the regs. Uh, we talked a bit, a little bit on the flight, FAR 117, and the amount of time you have to get to get just to a regional airline. 
Um, but anyways, it was called Mesa Airlines Pilot Development, and it was a it was a great opportunity. It, it was a five semester program. It was tied to uh, the uh, community college or, or two year school that was there in Farmington. So you did have to go through some general studies classes, which I begrudgingly you know did and had to do to get an associate's degree. I think it was associates of applied science and aviation technology. It was a, <laughs> a nice long title, but we're all there to get our ratings and, and work at the end of this program for Mesa airlines. Um, but yeah, five semesters, it took you through your private. It was ab initio. I think you mentioned at the very beginning of the program, take you from square one, no flight, you know, no experience necessary. Um, private commercial instrument, multi-engine. And then at the last, the fifth semester, we got time in the 1900, we did 40 hours in a procedure trainer, and then actually 10 hours in the actual aircraft with an instructor in a crew environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the program, when you completed the program, you were guaranteed a, an interview with Mesa. And it was just an interview. You could, uh, you could still not get hired, basically, you know, if you didn't play your cards right or if you were if you were not uh, <laughs> a yeah. nice person so to speak you could still complete the program and not get hired so yeah. but uh, the the beauty of that program was there was no cfi uh requirements and no flight instructing i came out of the school with uh, under 300 hours uh of flying and uh, i went right to a commuter airline which was uh, at the time it was a, it was a great opportunity i think uh now, in the years that followed, a lot of airlines were starting to hire guys with very, very low time. They were really looking for pilots. But um, then 1,500, 2,000 hours or more, you know, was what guys were applying with. So for me to come out of that school and be in that opportunity or to, to go right to the commuter was great. And uh, I think I touched on this with you on our flight that I trained for the 1900D. And I was going to be very excited to fly it. Uh, for Mesa. And when I came out of the school, Mesa's needs were changing. Their fleet was changing. They were getting rid of 1900s. And and I think this was 99, 2000. So RJs were, they were just hitting it big. There were a lot being ordered and they were growing that fleet. So when I got to my interview, my, uh, the guy interviewed me, said, how would you feel about going right into an RJ ground school? And, uh, you know, (laughs) I was scared and excited. And they say what you would say at any interview. I'll, gladly go wherever you need me to go wherever the needs there i'll go there i'll do it so uh that's what i got put into me and seven other guys from that school it was the first time anybody from that school had been uh, put into an rj um yeah, right into the crj with yeah. less than 300 hours uh it was an incredible incredible journey yeah and, and that uh, wasn't an I, easy I, journey for you either i mean we had a little bit of a discussion about the program itself i said how how is that program catered to where it has such a success rate with low time. And you were mentioning to me a lot about the stress that was involved and the way the program was designed. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. I mean, it was great flight training. I did my first solo, my first flight, uh, you know, in a training environment was in a Bonanza uh, A36. So right into the complex and high performance from square one. And I didn't know any different. You know, I, I still, to this day, I've never flown a Cessna aircraft. Um, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, I've flown some warriors, so, you know, but, uh, I, I never trained in them. I, and like, like I said, the, that was the first uh, thing we did was fly, uh, you know, retracting the gear and um, 
adjusting the prop and stuff like that. So, um, and they made the program stressful on purpose, I believe. I think that they knew that the opportunity they're going to give you and they knew the kind of people that they needed in the cockpit with that little bit of time. And they wanted to see if you could handle that, you know, that pressures of, of being an airline pilot. So we had strict deadlines. We had to follow. It wasn't like go to fly at your own pace. And when you're done, we'll give you an, no, you had to complete each semester by the deadline. And, uh, if you didn't, we had a end of semester deadline. And then one week later, you, you know, you had to rush through if you hadn't completed by then, uh, a drop dead date, they called it. And they did ask people to leave the program if they weren't done by that date. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, there was uh, many stressful times uh, during the course of that uh, five semesters. But um, yeah, I mean, we had something called uh, Lotto. They they didn't have a lot of planes, you know, and they had a lot of students and not a lot of planes. So you can only be on the the, uh, the schedule for four month, four days out. I think they only gave you four days, and then if you weren't on there, you can only be on there twice. You can't just hog the schedule. Um, and if you weren't on there twice already you showed up the next morning for something we called lotto where we put our name on a little number and they pulled it out of a hat kind of a deal. And then you got to put your name <laughs> in the schedule. And, I, and I'll tell you what, a lot of, a lot of mornings you went, by the time they pulled your name, your plane was full and your instructor was full and you just, you, you're not going to be on the schedule that day. So guess what? You show up a lot of the next morning. So I, I mean, scenarios were already set for you that even if you were uh, a great student and av you know aviator and you're going to do very well that you can fall behind and be very stressed because hey you didn't get on you know lotto kind of you were unlucky for a week or so and then when you did get on you know you had some weather you had aircraft maintenance and now you find yourself a week behind and people are checking off boxes of their um you know, of, of the lessons we had to complete before a stage check and you haven't started and now you're just worried. And, <laughs> yeah. but that's, that's what they, they set it up that way on purpose, I believe, you know, and, uh, and they knew of the incredible opportunity they were giving you. And they knew that, you know, the, this program, the way it's set up, when you come out of it, you ain't going anywhere else. Right. You're you're, you'll put up with so, it because. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because you who know, else gets up a, a job lot. at 300 hours? I mean. They, they, it wasn't lost on them that when you got hired at Mesa too, you're probably going to be putting up with a lot. You'll put up with a lot because where are you going to go? You're, you know? And you're used to it. Right. Right. <laughs> so you, you ended yes. up on the, the CRJ training yes, program at Mesa. This was in the year, uh, uh, was it 2000? Yeah. 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 And, and how did that training go for you? Uh, it, it went, went well. Um, it was again, 300 hours and now I'm learning a jet air, aircraft. But I was prepared for that because for the last year and a half, um, I was learning something new every semester, something I'd never done before in a, in a, a fast paced environment. So this is just doing it again. You know, I'm learning turbine aircraft in, a, in you know, the, the airlines training environment, but it was no different from what I've been doing. So, uh, you know, it went, uh, it went fine, you know, got through it. <laughs> Mesa never, uh, Paid for the for the nice slots for the simulator. I think they always paid for what was left over at flight safety because when I first got there, we didn't have our own simulators. We, we were at flight safety, wow. and uh, of course, I got the twelve a.m. to four a.m. sim slot. So you get in the you did the pre brief at ten p.m. sim at midnight. Get out at four. Debrief and the sun's coming up. I'm like, how, how is that conducive to good training? You know, yeah, hindsight being 2020, but again, what did I know back then? It's like, this must be how it is. And now we have to handle it. And, and you do. You yeah. Know? 
And once you got out on the flight line, did you feel any of the uh, the prejudices against low time pilots? I mean, the reason I ask is I know when I was over at Sandpiper, uh, I went over with a lot of time, not because I did that on purpose, but because I thought that's what I needed. I didn't find out later until I was actually already employed that, oh yeah, you went to that flight school? We had a program with them. Why didn't you come over at 500 hours? <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm a thousand hours later. What? <laughs> um, Knowledge is power. But then as you know, time progressed, I think uh, you know we had that kind of cyclical nature of the industry where we were hiring 300 hour 350 hour pilots as well. And I, you know, mm -hmm. here I was an FO, senior FO at that and flying with captains going, oh, thank God. You know, um, I'm like, what's the deal? Um, but then I know some of those pilots that had low time and they were fantastic. Um, you know, radio work was always a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for me and I have close to what, 1600 hours or, or 16,000 hours now. Um, and so I can understand some of the challenges, but you were telling me that. Uh, there was always a little bit of that where they look sideways at you and go, eh, 300 hour guys. Yeah. Yeah. How I don't that... think they'd ever say it right to my face, but I know that, you know, obviously it was, it was, uh, you know, going around. I mean, I, I, when I did talk to guys kind of off the record and captains, you know, they did say that people that came out of my school were, were well-prepared. Maybe they were just blowing sunshine up my rear end. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, we had we lacked real world experience, and maybe an ex you know experience on weather, you know, and line operations, and talking on the radio, and and things of that nature, which would make it hard uh, on a captain to deal with you as a first officer. I, I because later on, I think four years later, when I upgraded, I experienced the same thing dealing flying with people that came out of the school that I came out of, and and saying, okay, this is what it's like being over here sitting next to a guy like I was four years ago, you know, it's, it's, um, but you know, but they all said this, you know, the same thing, you know, stick and rudder skills were there, you know, we could fly, we could fly the plane. It's just, uh, what are you going to do? I mean, but there, there is sometimes a stigma for, for, for coming out with that kind of time, you know, and I just had to you know, say, Hey, you know, the military does it every day. If the training is there and it's good quality training, then the every hour you do is going to be jam packed with learning, you know that that kind of stuff, uh -huh. um, and and it can be done. You know, it's it's not unheard of. You know, and, and in Europe, you know, they'll put guys coming out of schools like this right into uh, you know transport category like narrow bodied aircraft, you know, or pick wide body. I've heard. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot it's going to be. And, and you that. you touched on it. I think that. Uh, it ebbs and flows on the the amount of experience and time pilots have when they are going to their first airline or or, or whatever airline they're going to, and uh, you know, absent COVID, which is hopefully just was a blip, you know, in some decent expansion of our airlines and hiring. Um, that yeah, we're going to experience that again, and uh, some of these airlines putting in uh, yeah, um, what do they call it schools. Um, uh, What's the, the term they cadet use? Cadet program that they're yes, doing now a cadet, and, a cadet program yeah. where they're they're selecting you uh -huh. again. You know, with the idea that they're going to help train you, they're going to train you their way, and uh, you know, you're going to be for them when you get done. You know, that's kind yeah. of 
what I was doing. Yeah, I think they know what to 90s. expect when they when they've selected a candidate. And on the last show, we talked about some of the news that came out with uh, United now uh, being one of the airlines that is hiring really straight off the street and uh, zero time pilots that are going through their what is their version of a, an Abinizio program where they're you know they get hired then they get their private pilot and united has bought a flight school that is now going to get them through under low time and of course they're going to have probably a restricted atp program commensurate with another university where they're going to get an aviation sciences degree um but it's kind of like the the program that you went through just the the newer version of it yeah uh the a post fr yeah i mean obviously they're going to have to build time somehow you know but uh to get what fifteen hundred to go to a commuter airline yeah. part, uh, or or it was at a thousand hours with a restricted yeah, ATP and outs. a college degree. Is that am I remembering there's that? There's a couple different outs to get it down to that a thousand for the restricted ATP. Is that is that what it is, Roger, or is it thirteen hundred? Uh, I thought it, I thought you could get it down to a thousand. A thousand. Yeah. Admittedly, I'm definitely not up on this, but I thought yeah, you could get it down to a thousand hours now. I think you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and then you applied to uh, Cactus Air uh, while you were there at Mesa as an FO, and you, you know, you applied. You didn't hear back for a couple of years, but then in 2005, you got the call, and there you were, a captain on a on a CRJ. How was that going over that way? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I applied to uh, you know Cactus. It was, uh, they, they had a lot of people that worked at Mesa that just because we had a big operation in Phoenix, uh, we, we did a lot of their express, you know, for, for a number of years. And, uh, and, and I, I grew up in, in Phoenix. Um, and so I'm kind of a hometown boy and I grew up around that airline and, and I had a lot of respect for them. And, uh, you know, they, they were not doing well when I was in 2000 getting hired at Mesa. Um, they had some bad operational years and, and the reputation was not, not good. Um, but over the years, September 11th happened, you know, uh, some industry turmoil. They, they got a new contract. They cleaned some things up. So around that time, 03, 04, you know, they were hiring again, one of the few that were. Um, and I decided that would be a good opportunity for me. Uh, that would be because uh, I, I certainly wanted to get out of uh, the regionals. Um, I didn't want to spend too much time there. The longer you stay, the harder it is to leave. Um, so the <laughs> get out there early, um, yeah. And I applied, and I think I applied as an FO because I think that they they did not have a re- requirement for PIC, uh, turbine PIC, um, and they did hire a few um, Mesa pilots that were just first officers. And I'm like, I'll, I'll try that. I'll definitely do it. Um, but it wasn't until I finally was able to get a class, and they spooled up. I was, I think, I was a captain on the CRJ at Mesa when they finally called my number. Um, uh, What's the difference between a regional uh, initial training and uh, a major airline training? Was there a big difference? There, there is. I think there is. I mean, at least from the reason that I came from, um, I can't speak for others, but I'm not going to say that I didn't get good training. Um, I, I, one of the things I think was, that was different is that they had an atmosphere at the major airline where they're going to help you through no matter what happened. 
you're there, they hire you, they like you, you're, they're going to get you through training. You know, they know that you're a pilot, you know, they, if you come to this level and, and believe it or not, when I went to uh, cactus, we, uh, we had to do a simulator part of the, uh, the interview. Um, so they're going to find out if you're, if you're an aviator, uh, through that. So they know, I mean, so when you're in training, it's like, relax, here's the information. We're going to go through it. Obviously you have timelines and stuff, but it was, it was very much like ah, where, when you're at the commuter and you're at your first, you know, they are like, all right, I got 10 guys behind you. So you better not screw this up or, you know, it, that's the feeling. <laughs> exactly. You know, it may not be that way, but that's the feeling they give you because they want to, uh, I don't know. They want to yeah. see you squirm, maybe. I That's don't what know. they told us the Sandpiper. But, uh, They're like, look to your left, look to your right. One of you guys or both of them or maybe you. You're not going to make it. So study up. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, definitely yeah. a, a change uh, in atmosphere, night, I think. Yeah, night and day, training-wise. And then when you get on the line, too, I mean, uh, just... Uh, I, just, I, I guess I could tell this story. It's been, it's been long enough, you know. And they, they know sometimes as pilots, you know, when we... We call in sick. It's sometimes to help uh, our schedule and not necessarily a sickness. <laughs> but um, I was brand new at at, uh, at Cactus, and I had come out of uh, Mesa, and Mesa is an environment where you know you 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 call in sick for a trip. You know they're most likely going to transfer you to your chief pilot, who's going to give you twenty questions and wonder why you can't work and and just lean on you. You know, and I'm ready for that. I, you know, I used to have to practice my my sick voice um so my <laughs> first call where i had to make a, a sick call at, at cactus uh i'm ready i'm like i, I think i was telling because we were going to a wedding and i'm telling my wife you know what uh you know do i sound sick <laughs> you know like <laughs> is that good enough is it scratchy enough you know what should i tell them uh, uh cold uh, should i tell if i well i was and so I get on and I, and I, and I talk to them and I said, hey, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just going to have to call in sick. I'm not feeling well for the, for the next trip. And just to hear her say, okay, we got you down. Call us when you're well. And I'm like, uh, what? Uh, <laughs> what? I, I just couldn't believe it. Just the, just the um, night and day, you know, just the way you're treated. Uh, yeah. Obviously your contract is usually, you know, better with work rules. It certainly was coming from, uh, you know, when I was at Mesa. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, good training, you know, not stressful training. Yeah. Just good quality training. Yeah. Roger, do you ever, do you ever call in a crew scheduling at your time at the airline and go, uh, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> I'm not, I don't. Uh, oh, no, wait. I no, I did. It was for uh, commuting purposes. Uh huh. I didn't make too many flights. Yeah. But I wanted to get paid, so I called in sick instead. So you're like, oh, I'm not yeah. going to make my commute, and it's full, I'm going to get booked off, so I'm not even going to try, I'm just going to call in sick. No, I was at the, actually at the airport. I remember calling from the airport, and I had missed, I don't know if it was one flight or two flights, just because I was, I don't know, maybe not a good employee at that point, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> and I had missed a flight, and I was standing at the airport. I Actually, I remember that now, and I just called in sick. I mean, the commuting had gotten so bad at that point. Like, you know, and I had had a couple turns dropped for commuting, and I just, I didn't. Oh, those are the worst. You know, yeah. And so, you know, you, you sacrifice the pay, which is fine and understandable, but I couldn't keep doing that. And so, screw this, man. I'm just going to go home. I get paid. Right. Yeah. Call you had, uh, I think we call that, uh, 
uh, uh, I hate to say it, but anal glaucoma. Have you heard of this term? <laughs> when you can't see your ass going to work? <laughs> I can't say I've ever heard that. You know, I'm not, I'm not big on, on that kind of stuff. I, I guess I'm too much of a, a straight arrow and it makes me feel horrible to, to think about doing crazy stuff like that. But yeah, I've been told I'm a, I'm a, what do you call it? The boy scout. Yeah. Stop being such a boy scout. Yeah. That's kind <laughs> of me sick. Too. And then I, and then I go through my whole stages of sick. I'm like, uh, um, yeah, this is Chris Gajilly. This is first officer Tony. I, I don't think I'm going to make it. I got laryngitis, <laughs> which I, you know, I never thought about at the time. Cause that's what everybody did. That's what, you know, that's, you know, okay. I gotta, I gotta focus on making myself at least sound tired and not good. But there are so many, <laughs> there are so many sicknesses to have or so many ailments to yeah, have. Yeah, you don't want to go overboard. Like, did, did you have a you? <laughs> well, I, I'm just saying that there are so many things that would and should preclude you from going to work that have nothing to do with me. <laughs> you right. know, sounding like you've got a cold. Yeah. Everyone goes right to the cold. Yeah. I got a cold. <laughs> my Instead neighbor, of, my mean, neighbor uh, was breathing on me. I think he has COVID. So I got to stay out for two weeks with pay. Thank you. Bye bye. I've got a migraine <laughs> headache. I mean, I, I mean, sinuses, you know, anything. I don't know. Yeah. There, there's so many reasons why you should not fly and you should mm-hmm. call in sick. And we kind of make light of it here, but you know, flying sick is like the most irresponsible thing you can do as a pilot. Right. If you, especially if it's something that's infectious or takes you out of your A game, because now you're a hazard on the flight line. And you know, if you're not feeling well, you know, despite the the jokes that we have here today, if you're not feeling well, and we've said this many times before on the on the podcast, is use the sick. That's what they're for. If you have to get a doctor's note, so be it. At a major or, or a mainline carrier, they're not going to ask you for that unless it's a major issue that could potentially be a uh, jeopardy for your medical, your FAA medical. But if it's if you're not feeling well, you have hay fever, allergies, by all means. Don't go flying and make it worse. Um, or if, you know, you're, you just have the sniffles. Oh, it's just allergies. Are you sure? Could you have a cold? Um, I think now things have changed in this uh, past year that people are not hesitating anymore. Um, Everyone's hypersensitive and hypervigilant yep. about everything. <laughs> yep. So, and that's a good thing. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that with us, Jerry. Uh, we've all we've all been there. You rebel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one, and I never did it again. I just uh, for yeah, the record, that was just the, yeah, that was just the one time, time and yeah, one time only <laughs> that airline that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you you were hired there, and you know you were fortunate enough to get uh, a base at home. So uh, home base, no need to commute uh, on mm-hmm. a a wonderful airplane, and you've you've pretty much. Mm-hmm stayed on there but you weren't originally selected to be on the airbus right you were hired on to something else oh yeah 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 when i um first got the cactus um i was one of the 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 junior guys in the class they usually determine it uh by by your age uh for the class sometimes they'll do it by some you know social security number but they did it by age and i i even whether it was at mesa or or cactus that i was one of the younger guys so um, I believe we had like, say, I don't remember the exact number, say 20 in our class. And we had 16 slots from the Airbus and four for the 737. And uh, again, I, I was happy to be there and would have flown anything gladly. But I had my eye on the Airbus. Uh, it looked very comfortable. And coming out of a glass cockpit, I thought, I'll stay in the glass cockpit. I know, I know what I'm doing in that environment. You know, like we had 
Cactus had a, some older 737s and had a lot of them with different looking cockpits, you know, different engine configurations and everything was that had every single one seemed to have something different. I'm like, I'd rather do the Airbus. But anyways, I was a fourth junior guy in class. So and talking to everybody, uh, it became evident that I was going to get a, a 7-3 slot. And I'm like, okay, it is what it is, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I like the Airbus. And um, basically before um, going to uh, the systems for the aircraft, I, I talked to somebody and he told me that he uh, was interested in doing the 737. He was one of the senior guys and, and uh, no one had ever said that yet. So I was really happy that he said that. And he told me that uh, uh, he was going to take it. So it opened up the last Airbus slot and I got the last Airbus slot and uh, I've been on the plane ever since. And uh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, we, we've had the opportunity to interview some, some amazing pilots here on the show and it's not an uncommon story, uh, whether it's at a commercial airline or in the military to get slots for a particular aircraft in the military, it always comes down to kind of the same thing, whether that's by age or by points on a test or, or, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, what do I need to do to get the plane that I want? And, you know, with commercial airlines, we're a little bit more limited in the techniques that we can use, but to have somebody that's senior to you go, I don't know, I'm thinking about 70. Oh yeah, you should totally do that. (laughs) (laughs) And you ended up on the bus and and I'm glad you did, Um, you know, but you survived more than just your initial training and your, the program, you ended up getting on with an airline at a time uh, post 9-11 era and you still saw some downturns and some initial mergers uh, between Cactus Air and what we'll call All-American Air. Uh, All-American Air was an East Coast carrier and Cactus Air was a West Coast carrier. And I mean, that was what, 2004? So that was, was that right before um, you got there or right after? No, that was right, right after I got there. I got hired with Cactus. Um, I think there may have been three or four classes after me before we experienced uh, that, mer- that particular merger. Um, yeah, there, there's ups and downs in this career. You're going to go through them. I mean, I, our, our hope is that we just happen to coast through at the right times and not have to experience any of that. I was on that track, so to speak. I mean, I, I get it in and out of the, the, the commuter unscathed by 9-11. We did furlough at the time. I was senior enough to not have to get furloughed. Um, and then going to Cactus, they, they announced the merger shortly after I got there and I got on the line and I knew things would were, were going to be different, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, I stayed junior because of fights over seniority and not being able to put together the two lists that traditionally, like, they normally are. They, you know, you usually put it together pretty quickly and, and move forward. But um, we stayed separate for many years, fighting in and out of federal court and and, and what have you. Uh, so I stayed junior on my side, and because I stayed junior, um, I did experience furlough in 08 with the uh, the Great Recession. Um, it just decimated everything, and it was a terrible time to lose a job in any industry, you know, aviation or or what have you. Yeah. Um, Everybody was out. It seemed to be out of work, but uh, yeah, I did. I did go out, and I went out for two and a half years. Um, and I think we we touched this a little bit. I, I 
I just, it just wasn't a good, it wasn't a good time. Yeah. <laughs> I had, uh, I had opportunities. Uh, they just, uh, things were lined up to do some cool stuff and they, and they would fall through and ridiculous fashion for me, a couple of different airline jobs, uh, one overseas, a couple overseas opportunities, one back here at a commuter fall through. And then, um, I think I was an enrollment counselor for an online college oh, wow. for about a year. Yeah. Anything to pay the bills, you know, what are you going to do at the time? And like I said, a lot of people out of work, not just in aviation. So, you know, I was happy to have a job. Um, but, uh, I did get to do some, uh, part 91, uh, flying and, uh, that was pretty cool too, to get to see that part of the industry, uh, a company called jet suite. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool to do that. I did that for about eight months before getting recalled, I think in 2011. Mm. And, uh, since then, I think they've uh, they changed the name on the side of my plane another time and yeah work for good old legacy as we're going to call it today yeah yeah and so did did that uh, when you came back from furlough you came back before the that merger so you were at Cactus Air um, and then which later changed its name to All American Air let's just say that. And then All American Air then had a merger. Was it 2015? I think it was, and they turned into Legacy. Yeah, they merged mm-hmm. with Legacy Airlines. So, Something like that. I don't. I don't yeah. remember the exact dates. Did that really affect yeah, you um, with each each uh, progressive merger in terms of seniority and equipment and flying and quality of life, or were you fortunate <laughs> enough to kind of? You know, other than the furlough, obviously, that made times tough for three years. But well, I mean. How did that affect you? The, the the Moab, as they call it, the mother of all bids and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'll be honest with you. We could probably uh, do ten podcasts to get into the ins and outs of the first merger, and and you could probably write a couple books on how not to do a merger as far as integrating of work groups and the animosity. And it was uh, it was legendary. Yeah, between Cactus and we call All American, it was uh, it was it was not good. And that really affected my quality of life just because we, we remained separate and I stayed junior during that whole time. And it really wasn't until the legacy merger that uh, um, it really kind of opened the floodgates and allowed opportunity and uh, to have one list and move around if you want to and change aircraft if you want to. Um, but yeah, I mean, through that whole time before staying on the bottom, I'd say the bottom 95 percentile or so just... Uh, doing just reserve the whole for over a decade, you know, it's, it's definitely going to impede on your quality of life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And that's what we deal with in the industry. It's just part of the deal. Mergers, downturns, furlough, you know, it's all part of it. And I can, uh, you know, unfortunately say I've, I've experienced it all now. I'm a seasoned aviation veteran here now. Yeah. So did you get based in Los Angeles as a part of your, initial upgrade at legacy or was that because of the shrinkage of the base in phoenix oh yeah our base in phoenix did shrink um i managed to hang on to that um you know we we were shrinking for for a decade (laughs) i think we went from 1800 pilots to 1200 um and then with the legacy merger, the, the domicile went from 1200 down to 600 or so. Uh, I don't even know what it's at today, but I, I 
I stayed in it that whole time. I never got kicked out of Phoenix. It was just that I'd been there long enough and I was ready to upgrade and experience the left seat that uh, I decided to go ahead and, and leave the nest and become a commuter and go to Los Angeles. And I, yeah, I made the choice yeah. uh, to do that. Yeah. And that's a common question, especially once you become uh, kind of a senior FO at whatever airline you're is, whether that's a regional airline or whatever operation you're flying, a mainline airline. Once you become a senior enough FO to where you can start to see it on the horizon, that illustrious fourth stripe, and you're like, oh, do I upgrade on the first opportunity I get on the smaller jet in New York market, or do I hold off and wait until I can keep either this aircraft or maybe move on to another aircraft that I feel like I would enjoy uh, or a base I would enjoy? Um, where I don't have to commute maybe, or maybe uh, I'm willing to commute, but as long as I can hold a line and not be on reserve. And your experience, you know, you've done this twice now in your career, either through because you've always had this idea in the back of your mind or someone taught you this early on, but you've always gone for that quality of life. So you didn't upgrade at the first opportunity, you waited. What really helped you choose to wait to upgrade at legacy and then pick a base and stay on the same airplane what was that thought process like that's uh it's going to be subjective to each pilot you know every pilot has individual goals he might really really just want to uh progress in his career and get that that force type really quick um and others might not you know care as much i mean me at that point in my career um, I, I, I have, uh, I have two children and yeah, they're young. So I wanted to be home as much as I could, you know, so I, I'll take the right seat a little bit longer. Um, and it, certainly I wasn't going to be entertaining getting the left seat in a place like we're not, we weren't moving for one. Um, so I'm not going to do it in a place like New York or Philly or Miami, which were our pretty junior domiciles here at, at legacy. Um, or even, you know, Charlotte is another one that's it's kind of senior, but it's it's far away. I, I really had to wait. But when it comes to Los Angeles and that being close, a lot of the guys in Phoenix had made that decision to, uh, you know, either upgrade on a narrow body there and make the commute or, or the right seat of the wide body. That was another option that we're lucky to have available to us. Um, mm-hmm. And I went ahead and chose the left seat Airbus. Yeah. And, you know, your transition having all those years behind your belt on the right seat of the same aircraft and then now moving to the left seat, do you really feel that was a huge advantage for you? Or were you, do you think that it would have been the same no matter what, considering your time? I know that it made training boring. <laughs> <laughs> boring is good. <laughs> no, yeah, boring is good. Boring is good. No, um, you know, again, at this level, they're going to they're gonna train you and you're going to get through the program so that there's, you know, there, I wasn't, you know, worried about being stressed, having not known the plane or something like that, but having known it for so long, uh, I'm not going to lie that it, uh, they, they make us do a full, uh, program when we do upgrade. It doesn't matter if you come out on a different piece of equipment or the same equipment, you're moving to the left seat. You're going to go through the whole program. Oh, like, okay. yeah. Yeah. That's so actually good. I, would, I like that idea. I mean, we had, uh, I did a qualified upgrade at Sandpiper because I went from the right seat to the left seat of the same aircraft. And it was a very, very short course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, maybe I think five Sims and, and, uh, six days of ground school. And one of those days was, uh, 
they, what they call the Captain Charm School, which is not an FAA okay. requirement. It was a company requirement that you, mm-hmm. you know, they want to make sure that you're thinking like a leader in a, in a, a PIC, you know, that's just very important, especially when you're dealing with a very young crowd of pilots. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's um, I think at Mesa, we had a shorter upgrade program as well, where you're going to get through uh, much quicker and yeah, it worked and that was fine too. Um, <laughs> I guess for me having to commute to my training, I would not have mined a shorter, more, uh, an upgrade course where if you're flying, been flying the plane that you're just going to be learning the seat. Um, but it was fine. It was, it was great to get back into the books once again and really, cause you, you lose some of the book knowledge, you know, you start developing your own habits when you're online, you, you really, it's nice to get back in that time and learn the flows the way they're supposed to be and really have the time. So I had plenty of opportunity, uh, to really get back into it and, yeah. and, and, and hone those skills and, 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 uh, learn some things that I didn't know before, you know, even having the plane from the plane for that long, I could get into, uh, some details. I, I felt sometimes I was teaching my instructors a lot of the stuff having flown the plane for so long, you know, but <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. I love it when your ears go up and you're like, Hmm, uh, what? <laughs> That's not right. And your instructor's so, looking yeah. at you like, what? <laughs> so going from just the Airbus right seat, which you must've been pretty senior to a junior Airbus <laughs> well, captain, believe, are the, are the it or trips not, better? Phoenix, believe it or not in Phoenix, I was not uh senior Phoenix because is a of the super, low pilot numbers. Super, well, it's a super senior domicile because of our mergers um, and the, the group that's still there, uh, an older group that, uh, you know, lived there because Cactus was uh, like, for all intents and purposes, a one domicile airline. So we all lived there. And so no one was leaving, you know, and everybody stayed. So it, it, it it's crazy when I started looking at seniority that my level um, as a Phoenix first officer was almost equal to my level as a LaGuardia captain percentage wise. And that's how senior Phoenix is. Um, so I didn't, unfortunately I didn't get to, to a nice top level where I'm getting the juicy, nice trips as a, a senior. I was still. So are your trips half, virtually halfway. the same? You, you, <laughs> there was no change. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have a, 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 a cushy schedule versus a, no, no, I'm still waiting for that Christian schedule. Aren't we all? <laughs> nice Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someday. Some, they tell me every, they, they, they tell me I'm going to inherit the airline. Still yeah. waiting for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're young enough. You'll definitely be in the top uh, 10% of the, uh, of the pilots out there uh, at some well, point yeah. for retirement. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's the infamous last words, you know, looking at it from right now. You're going to upgrade and just the way things are going, you're going to upgrade next year. Like what? What? Yeah, there's been, there's been <laughs> I've plenty of those stories in the industry. Yeah. Do they even have any other aircraft types out of Phoenix or is it just the, the Airbus? Um, and, do they have a 7-3 out of there? No, no, it's not, not a, a domicile. For them. They're they, there. Is it just have, the Airbus? Yeah, the, the 7-3s are all through, but they, they don't crew them uh, out of Phoenix, um, which is unfortunate because I would have been, you know, Seven three or not, uh, I'll be the first one to sign up for it. If it looked like I was going to get back to Phoenix in the left seat quicker, I'd absolutely do it. But they haven't done that. They did have a small seven five 
uh, domicile that you know used to exclusively exclusively do a Hawaii flight Hawaii. out of Phoenix, uh, but it's they of course they've dumped that whole fleet yeah. now, uh, and we have the Neos A three twenty one Neo that has the uh, the range to do Phoenix. Hawaii. And to add insult to injury, most of the flying I did <laughs> last month was as an LAX based pilot. Would be a, a day of flying with an overnight in Las Vegas, and then the next day Las Vegas, Phoenix, Phoenix to Hawaii. So it wasn't even being flown by Phoenix-based pilots. It was an LA-based pilot flying that lake. So it's not like the base is adding flying. By yeah. removing the 7.5, they actually got rid of flying out of that base. Yeah, the, the flying has consistently gone down, and so who knows uh, if I will be able to get back or when that will be as a captain. We'll see. Yeah, it is... I'm not expecting that. It's not something. So is the goal right to, to be, to Airbus is the, is the goal captain in Phoenix or flying something bigger out of LAX, I guess becomes the question. Yeah. As it sits right now, it's captain in Phoenix. I mean, I was forced with that choice when I was looking at upgrading. Um, do I, do I move to the left seat in LA or do I go to the right seat of the wide body in LA? Um, I've been told by people that that's a whole nother airline. Just the way they treat you and just everything, you know, from top to bottom, the flying you're doing. And um, I, I was looking forward to getting the, the four stripe. It's in, in what, 21 years I've been flying. It's few and far between. So I was, I was ready to upgrade. Um, I'm intrigued by the wide body overseas flying. Um, you talked a little bit in the beginning about your experience in the time zones and, and things of that nature. That's not something that I relish. So, <laughs> I mean, I will do it at one point, definitely, but I'm not, I'm not chomping at the bit like some guys were, you know, to get into that. You know, it'll probably be for me well down the road after I'm uh, probably back in Phoenix as an Airbus captain. If I'll, I'll choose to move left seat to left seat into a wide body way down the road, if that opportunity is given to me. Yeah, and if nothing else, go do it and say you did it, and then go back to the Airbus. Yeah, in Phoenix, uh, if you want. <laughs> yeah, maybe you know, maybe I, I'm I, I'm sure I will like it, but uh, I'm not going to stretch or again lose that quality of life in order to to do yeah. it. You know? Yeah, yeah. So what are, you know, we've we've talked about your journey and and some of the the challenges that you've overcome with all of the cyclical nature of the industry is is a common phrase that we use um, amongst us aviators. What do you see are some of the most common issues considering our current market, everything that we're all going through right now uh, on the flight deck and how do you handle those? Uh, I, I guess nothing is jumping out to me that is extreme, you know, whether it be a safety related thing Um. I guess right now is, is, you know, what we're going through is the big thing is the COVID, you know? Um, so that's, that's on everybody's mind, whether it be just looking at our industry wholly, uh, you know, the, the, the big picture and how it's going to affect us all going forward. And there were some dicey times of the last year where we all, I think said, I hope my carrier will be here. I hope <laughs> this industry is still going to look the same, you know, a year from now. Because there was it was it was scary, you know, and unprecedented, you know, yeah. lack of of ridership. So we're all thinking about that. And operationally, you know, it's been very interesting trying to make sure everybody wears a mask on the plane. Um, as a captain now, uh, not only am I flying, I'm, I'm captaining the whole crew and deal with you know flight attendant issues and things going on in the back and. 
And um, something I didn't have to do as a first officer for many years. So uh, listening to the, the, their issues with passengers, I've had to uh, kick a few passengers off. You know, one was COVID related, one was, was not. Um, you know, that's a different world. Uh, I don't have to worry about that. But, um, you know, I think we're, I, hopefully we're coming out of that now. <laughs> um, and our in, industry will stabilize. Maybe some hiring will continue. The growth we all hope for will continue. Um, and we'll look back on this time and well, the time we all had to wear masks. Wasn't that crazy? You know, hopefully it'll be like that. But uh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, definitely, I've seen an uptick on passenger disturbance issues and um, just people behaving badly. I mean, we've all seen these YouTube videos and Facebook videos of you know all-out brawls and WWE-style wrestling matches happening in our airport terminals around the country. Um, mm -hmm. Every carrier, no one's immune. Uh, there mm -hmm. used to be a time where, oh, that was, you know, so-and-so airlines and, you know, go figure. Nope. It happens on all of us. Um, and unfortunately yeah. it's, we've become with how many, how many mandatory PAs are we now <laughs> having to yeah. give? And, yeah. I, I'm no. sick of making that same one over and over, um, <laughs> about the mask, but it is what it is. We have to make it and, uh, and are required to make it because, if we do have to kick somebody off, we have to say that we warned them. We warned them this many times about the masks and I've had to kick a few off because they refuse to wear it. And, and uh, you know, it, it is what it is, but yeah, things are hopefully going back the other way. I mean, there right now, there certainly is a different socioeconomic status, I guess, that are able to fly that normally aren't because we've had some very cheap air, air fares for a while, you know, with very empty planes. Um, and it did bring some, you know, interesting things to the back of the plane, you know, as far as arguments and, and what have you. Yeah. Um, but I think that will hopefully it's all cyclical and will change again. So if a young man or a woman or, you know, even one of your own children said to you, you know, I think I want to be an airline pilot, dad, I see what you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, what would you say to them? Oh gosh, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. And it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer, especially my own son, because my, my son is now uh, 10 years old and he hasn't really expressed any interest in, in, in that uh, as of yet. He, he does like NASA and, and rockets and, and, and stuff like that, but I don't know if I'd steer him this way. And honestly, what, I, what scares me the most is the fact that I, I think for me and your career, my career, all of our careers, we're, we're, we'll be fine. Um, but someone who's my son's age wanting to be a pilot. Um, I think our days are numbered. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. The amount of automation that's up there now, whether it starts with one part, one pilot on the flight deck or one pilot, and then the person next to him doesn't have any license or, you know, it's half license. And then it goes to one pilot and then it goes to no pilots. I mean, they can take the plane. They can do, they can do it all now. It's just obviously, and as times change and, um, you know, a millennial out there, goes to the airport without even driving his car. It's not a big leap for him to get on an airplane that doesn't have a pilot. I mean, I bet that there's people in the, um, I don't know, back in the thirties or forties or whatever that said, there's no way I'm going to get in an elevator without an elevator operator. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, or like, yeah. you know, you, the sky train, I, there's those things are just rolling around. And I'm sure at some point someone said, I'm not going to get on a train without a conductor or something like that. But, 
I think uh, ultimately our days uh, are numbered and, and, and uh, so that scares me, I guess, for my son's age, he's, he's pretty young. Yeah. Um, so I do think about that <laughs> as far as uh, maybe saying, you know, that would be my biggest fear is him putting in the effort and the time and the money it takes to be a pilot. And then 10 years into his career, there's nothing for him because they're yeah. shrinking the numbers of pilots out there as, as the, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. it's, it's going to happen. It's the question is how long does it take and when does it happen? Yeah. And Roger, what about yourself? I mean, you've got two young children around the same age. Uh, what would you say if one of them came to you and said, I think I want to be a pilot, dad. Uh, I'm thankful that neither one of them seems to have any interest in being a pilot. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I think that what, you know, what Jerry was just saying is, is possible. I think it's probably a little farther in the future, especially with passengers. If you want to talk about cargo, I think that's a totally different discussion. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure that those guys are pouring billions of dollars into figuring out how to not have to pay pilots. Um, in terms of the passenger, I think that that's a little farther in the future, but it's such a, it's such a volatile industry. You know, it's something that, that we talk about fairly often, you know, with, with different guests. Um, you know, you were fortunate, Tony, that you haven't, you know, ever went through the furlough and, you know, today both of us have and, and no matter how well it goes, it still leaves you a little bit scarred. And I mean, you know, he was yeah. happy, you know, it sounds like you to, to fly an, any airplane or an airplane, but you're, you're definitely taking a huge step back. And then you realize that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of, of other people in your same position who are applying for the same few positions. And that gets really hard. Um, you know, I can say, especially for me that had a family at the time trying to figure out what to do. And there are just, yeah. to be a hundred percent honest, there are other things to do that are a little bit more stable. Now, that being said, even I think just yesterday I was talking to my son about it, who, who my son's eight, I have a 10 year old and an eight year old. Um, I'm very grateful that the job I do, like it's, it's a job, but I don't mind going to work for the most part. I mean, there's always those days, but the job that I get to do, I mean, it's hard. You're hard pressed to find a, a cooler job. I mean, to go flying over the face of the earth at 600 miles an hour is, I mean, and to see some of the things from the vantage point that we get to, it's something special, but over the course of a career, I don't know. Yeah. They're my kids and I love them, but I just, <laughs> you know, I hope they find something that they enjoy. I think that that's the most important part. And, you know, like you and I have talked about before, Tony, is like, this is something that you have to love in order to survive it. Um, I'm sure Very that Jerry true. would agree with that. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I hope that whatever my kids, I, I won't push them or, you know, say, hey, I don't think you should do this. Um, I just hope that they really love it, no matter what they decide to pursue. Yeah. It's a very mm -hmm. generic response to that question. Well, but. I, you know, I, I think it's a common response. Um, I, I've asked people this question before, both here on the show and on the flight line. And a few people would say, absolutely. It's a great time. You know, the technology and, and the population is growing and those people need to get from point A to point B. And I don't think Star Trek is going to happen anytime soon with teleportation. So, and you know, the, the public is going to demand to have a qualified pilot or two up there. Um, because I mean, how many 
crashes. One crash is too many. Uh, and we see crashes with Teslas on auto drive, even though the, com- the company does a very good job at, uh, you know, squashing any kind of media that comes out uh, after a crash in a Tesla uh, to prove that it was not on auto drive. Um, but, you know, they happen, things happen um, and mechanical things break. And that's why you need a human up there to use that wonderful noggin that they have, all those hundreds of thousands of dollars of education to keep that airplane safely continuing on and handle the situation that is in that gray area that's not in the manual, that's not in the book. Um, And so I don't think in our lifetime uh, that we're going to start to see a reduction of the necessity for human pilots up there. I don't even think that we're going to see single pilot operations, although other countries and other countries' airlines have tried to put one qualified pilot and one, say, commercial pilot on a flight deck of a, of a f- commercial airline. Not every airline in the world requires two PIC, ATP quali- qualified, I should say, um, pilots up there. This is what, pretty unique to America. Um, there are plenty of countries up there that all you need is one captain and a commercial pilot with 300 hours in the right seat. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so there's a huge difference between where we see the future of this industry going and the reality of where we are today. Um, I don't know what I would tell my daughter. She's 15 and has absolutely zero interest in aviation (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) Um, And like what you've mentioned, both of you, um, I'm a little grateful for that uh, simply because I've struggled throughout my career. It wasn't always a walk in the park. I've been very fortunate not to be furloughed. Uh, we talked about my zero timeline experience here at Legacy Airlines, and that really wasn't that bad. The potential was there. The stress was high. But in the end, you know, I came through it relatively unscathed. Um, it's a great career to have. And I know what I've had to sacrifice to do it. And I know what my family's had to sacrifice to do it to support me. And so I don't know if I'd want my child to have to sacrifice as much as I've had to. So that's why I asked the question. There's always that part of the debate that's out there. Now, if my daughter came to me tomorrow and said, I want to be a pilot, that's my joy. I love airplanes. I love airplanes. I love airplanes. Then I would support her because that's what her passion is. And I'd make sure that she would make the best decisions possible to to really minimize the sacrifices that you have to make. So in all your years of flying the line, have you had any pretty hairy flights or experiences that you'd like to share? Sure. We, uh, yeah, there's, there's a few. Um, yeah. I mean, some good, some bad, some, some where, you know, things were done very well. Others where we could have done some better things. I mean, the, the big thing is we, we learn from, uh, you know, the, the things that, that have happened. I've, um, one particular one I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a, a good experience is I was actually a first officer at Mesa and um, we uh, took off out of Phoenix. I think we were going to Colorado Springs and normal takeoff uh, didn't feel a thing. We're climbing uh, on with a departure and they, they said, Hey, we want to relay a message from the tower. They said there was debris left on the runway. They think it was from you guys. And we both looked at each other like, I don't know, felt normal to me. So uh, we, we continued on. And then five minutes later, the flight attendant came up and, or 
called up and said that passengers were really freaked out because it was really bumpy when we took off and now it smells like rubber back here. <laughs> like, all right, well, it's putting two and two together. It's obviously we had some kind of an issue and we're going to have to deal with that. So um, being, I think I was relatively still pretty relatively new first officer and the captain was pretty new, but uh, I remember him handling it uh, very well, really slowing down during the emergency, you know, knowing that this is okay. This is now a regular ops um, and not speeding up, but, you know, again, just like let's, everything slows down so we can yeah. go through dot every I cross every T and get the plane on the ground. And he did what they, what they teach it, you know, good CRM. He included myself. He started calling the company and asking their opinions. We think we have a tire issue. Should we press on to Colorado Springs or should, do you think we should come back to Phoenix? What do you guys? And then we made the decision and ultimately he made the decision. We come back to Phoenix um, and, and land there. And we had no idea what was wrong. Honestly, you know, it's only just what they told us about uh, the tire. So um, we decided to come back. We did declare an emergency and we're like, let's, uh, we decided to do a, a PA, low pass. We don't know if we don't have any landing gear hanging out the thing now, or if it's a tire issue or what, maybe it's not even us. Maybe that debris was there and we sucked a little up. Who knows? Um, so we did a low pass. We dropped the gear, came around, let the tower take a look at our, our, our undercarriage. And they, they said it looked normal. They say we don't see anything different. So, okay, well, with that information, we'll come back around and we'll just do another approach and land. I think it was runway 26 in Phoenix. Um, it's funny, and I'll never forget this as we come right back around because we did take the time to let everybody know and, and talk to people and include people. It also gave everybody and their mom time to know that there was an emergency out there. I mean, the uh, media outlets all listen uh, to guard and all that. So by the time we did come around to land the plane, there was three helicopters hovering over the threshold of two six, um, just waiting for us to go up in a ball of flames at the end of the runway. <laughs> um, that's what they want, you know. They they, they want to see something dramatic happen. So um, you know, they gave us a discrete frequency and all that good stuff. And we, we came in and, and uh, we're just going to do a, a nice long rollout, you know, a touchdown. And we, I don't think we had our passengers brace because again, the, the gear looked good. Um, and we rolled out and we still didn't feel anything. I think the nose wheel came down and had a little bit of a shimmy. So we thought, well, maybe that was the nose wheel. We had something, but we, we rolled off and into the little, uh, you know, area there for, some overflow parking and set the, well, you feel, you feel kind of this when we were getting slower, like when you have a, a pop tire in your car, you know, mm -hmm. as you slow down, you finally feel boom, 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 boom. So we set the parking brake and the plane is still going boom, 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 boom. And we look at each other like, what the heck? And we look down and the, and the, and the vibration gauge on one of the engines is like off the chart. And we're like, okay, well, let's, let's secure the engines here and we're not going to move anymore. We, you know, call out a bus to get our passengers, you know, an air stair because we're not, we're not going to go anywhere. Uh, and apparently that's, that's what happened is we, I, I got out and did a walk around and I think it was the number, the inboard tired on the number two landing gear, the right landing gear. Um, the tread had completely come off. Uh, it was just, it was, it was intact. It was still 
hair in the tire, but it was just all you saw was cord, no more tread. And the underside of the flap was completely dinged up in black where all the, you know, the black, uh, the tread had, had hit it. And on the over, on the other side, the top of the wing was sitting a bunch of my the tire tread on the top of the wing. And then I looked up the side of the fuselage and it was black all the way up and then up into the engine, which is, it's practically, you know, the, the bottom half of the, uh, the inboard flap, it's, it's practically right below the intake of the engine. It had traveled up and almost came forward and gotten into that engine. All Sucked that up uh, in there. Wow. Yeah. And it sucked a lot up. Uh, I heard later that they did the scope on the engine. It was, they, they, it was toast. It was done, but it was, it was producing thrust and we had no idea we had an engine problem until we got on the ground and we were at idle and we're sitting there. Then you could feel the thing vibrating, no indications. And anyways, but that, that, that emergency was, uh, I, I like to tell that one just because it, he did the captain I flew with did a great job. Really? just slowing down. We didn't have to, we didn't have to rush back in or, or force a decision. You know, you could include the company, you could include, you know, obviously myself as a first officer, uh, talk to dispatch, talk to mechanics, you know, just ask opinions. And then we had plenty of fuel. And that was, that was, that was the thing we had just started our flight. Um, so that was, a, that was an emergency and a, and a success story. I like I like to, yeah, to tell. That's a good one. I haven't, I, and, and I know the CRJ well, and it was that a 200 series that you were flying? It was, yeah, it was a 200. Yeah, so the engine yeah. is literally right in line with the trailing edge of the of the wing. So to have yeah. debris go from under the wing and then, you know, in its evaporation of tread and rubber and who knows what else to get sucked back up and almost have to go kind of forward and then get sucked yeah. into the into the engine. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it made us wonder if we if we actually maybe had sucked more up on our landing with reversers and stuff. Uh, obviously we did suck stuff in the engine on takeoff cause you, you wouldn't smell rubber in the cabin without, but, uh, yeah. I think we did more when we rolled out the second time. Yeah. Um, yeah. To have the, the tread sitting on the top of the wing, obviously it's you know, obvious that something like that did happen. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Well, thank you for emerged. sharing that with us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one thing that was funny about that is, you know, you're talking about the media and the helicopters. I told my wife at the time, I said, hey, you know, I'm just letting you know everything's good. I'm fine. But we just had an emergency. Well, I taped the evening news tonight. So I want to see what, you know, what happens. And I did see they, they had a story on it. And they had us in, you know, like tensions at Sky Harbor Airport this evening. And they show us as we come in and then they talk about it. And they, and they said, they had a gear problem and they lo and behold, they, they have like the little circle around our nose gear. So that just tells you they don't I have no idea. They don't really know what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> That's the gear right there. That thingy, that dangling thingy right there. It's yeah. a gear yeah, thingy. I had a problem with this tire and it's, that, <laughs> it's no, that thingy. wasn't the one. <laughs> well, thank you for but sharing that with us. It's details. wonderful to hear, you know, these successful outcomes. And, and this is part of the portion, you know, what do you call it? Part and parcel of, of mm-hmm. the career that, you know, you have these scenarios. That's why it's important to have two crew members up there to make these kind of decisions when these, you know, irregular flight ops, as you, as you, uh, called mm-hmm. it happen. Um, and, and it's really where you earn your pay in one flight <laughs> for the year. Sometimes yeah, you're absolutely right. You'll get no argument out of me. Uh, as far as that goes, definitely. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, as we wrap up the show, I just, again, want to say thank you for joining us and sharing your journey with us. Uh, at this point, I want to ask you just a few last questions. You know, if you can go back in time uh, to a point where you're just thinking about starting a career in aviation and whisper in your younger self's ear, what would you tell yourself? Oh, I thought about that a little bit. Uh, gosh, I mean, there's a lot of little times during the course of the career, you'd, you'd like to make some different choices and this would have worked out much better if I'd done this, but ultimately I'm, I'm very happy the way things turned out. I mean, one, one thing I, that comes to mind is when I was furloughed, I applied uh, at, a, at a company overseas. Um, it was in the, uh, the Gulf, in the, in, the, in the Persian Gulf, one of the Gulf carriers. I actually got hired at that company and was ready to move with my wife. We didn't have kids. And they were very adamant that I resign. Uh, resign my seniority, resign completely from the airline. I was on furlough and I didn't want to do that. None of us ever want to do that. You know, and in our chief pilots uh, in the Phoenix domicile were saying, whatever, you turn that in and I'll just throw it in the garbage can, you know. Um, but this particular airline was checking up. Uh, they would literally call HR and make sure that you've resigned from the airline, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was going to be probably forced with doing that, but I, I was going to do it because I was kind of upset with, was it all American? Is that what we were calling it mm -hmm. at the time, the way things were going and, uh, you know, going to take this opportunity to reset my airline career do something in a place that I'd never done flying, you know, and see some places I'd never see, uh, before. And who knows, have the opportunity later on, um, and then, then look and reassess the industry a few years down the road. But, you know, honestly, now I think hindsight 2020, I'm, I'm glad things turned out the way they did. You know, I stayed, um, uh, the furlough wasn't fun, but, um, you know, we obviously merged with legacy airlines and, and things are going well, you know, absent little COVID blip. Um, that's good. You know, as far as further back in my, uh, you know, I, I wonder whether if I would have, Known I wanted to be a pilot earlier before getting into, you know, and pursuing a bachelor's in four years of, of a bachelor of music degree. Um, if that would have got me to the industry earlier, it's always very important to get here early and get your seniority early. And I wonder sometimes what my career would have looked like had I been in it uh, four years or so earlier, which could have happened. Um, but, you know, that is what it is. You know, this yeah. is the way it went down. And, you know, as I'll tell you now, I don't think I'd change a thing. I, I enjoyed studying music and I enjoy what I do with that now. So. Absolutely. Wonderful to hear. Mm -hmm. And if you could think back to a person that had the greatest impact to your success in aviation, who would that be? And what would you like to tell them? <laughs> Is it sad that I'm not, no, no one's popping into my head. I guess I didn't have really good mentors uh, helping me along the way. <laughs> I've done it on my own and I did it my way. Uh, there's a song about that, I think. Good old Frank. Oh, gosh. You know, I, there's not one. There's been a lot of good PICs because I spent a majority of my career in the right seat as first officer and whether, you know, teaching me the ins and outs of, uh, you know, it's what it's going to be like to be a captain or what, where to go or how to do this. You know, just the, the, the advice from multiple people along the way, uh, you know, I'm very thankful to have, you know, to, to help me to, uh, you know, to try to get to the major level quickly, you know, and, and how to go about doing it and that kind of thing. You know, I, I've had help from numerous people and I, and I very happy about it. So I can't think of one person right now. 
support yeah. support of my family that's 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 it that's my answer i'm sticking to that one that's it <laughs> okay well you know i i just want to say thank you jerry for giving us a kind of a sliver of your journey how you got to sitting in the left seat of an airbus flying a two-day trip with me just the other day um you know i always enjoy flying with you i think uh our personalities hit it off uh, had a wonderful time on the layover um thanks again for for you know, talk about generous captain. He he shows up on day one, very first leg with a bunch of uh, pastries in LAX for the crew. Hey, yeah, you want some pastries? I got some pastries for the crew. Now, don't worry, your secret's safe with me. I'm not going to tell everybody we fly with <laughs> to expect this. But and then here we are in in the Big Easy, getting ready for our flight, and we it was just he and I, and you know we caught catch the hotel van to, or shuttle to get to the airport, and we know that our flight attendant or cabin crew uh, were doing the turn. So, you know, they brought the airplane in and it was going to be a pretty quick turn. And sure enough, as soon as we got there, he's like, come on, let's go get some beignets for everybody. And I'm like, whoa, okay. Some, uh, some donuts here, huh? Co- covered in powdered sugar. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we, we'll uh, we hook, he hooked us up, you know, he hooked up the crew. Uh, they were all very grateful. Talk about a good way to make a good impression. That's well, you know, I hope you're paying attention because that's one of the things I, I, I flew with a guy that did that and he did it more than me. He did it on every leg. Oh, wow. He literally every leg would be like, you know, or at least at least every new crew mm-hmm. would go to them and say, do you know what coffee kind of coffee do you want? You know, like, what do you want to eat? And, you know, there's no ifs, ands or buts. He's going to go get it. You know, um, I haven't been that generous. But I, when I start a trip, um, I like to, you know, to, it's always good to have them on your side. You know, <laughs> yeah, you break down um, those walls of communication exactly. and you really do Absolutely. set the tone, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the more I can do it, the better. So, oh, yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes, buddy. I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just want to say thanks again for joining us. Uh, anything you'd like to say out there as a final thought? I don't know. I think we've, we've touched on a lot. I just, I appreciate uh, you having me on. Um, yeah. I like this format and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share my story. Um, yeah. Nice to meet you too, Roger. Nice to hear the, uh, the beginning uh, part about uh uh, the other side maybe maybe down the road yeah i can I, well of course we all have as aviators we have a bazillion stories so you know i have uh i saw part 91 stories too from when i was furloughed and we can we can explore more of that next time oh yeah, it sounds like a plan it's great to meet you as well and thank <laughs> you very much for for being willing to share your story absolutely thanks yep. thanks for having me now, and thank you to all the frontline workers out there the doctors nurses pharmacists emts medical techs firefighters law enforcement grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course, all the airline employees that show up to work every day to provide essential services that we do. Now we just need to get these eateries reopened at the airports around the country so we don't have to wait in line for half an hour to get a $30 cold sandwich and an $8 cup of coffee. Yeah, I said it. So what? Here we are. <laughs> just enjoying every single moment of our careers. We hope that you, the listeners out there, are also enjoying Squawk Ident. Please help us out by making sure to follow the show on whatever podcast player format you're listening to it on. If you like what you hear, spend just a moment and write us a review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out. And share the show with a friend. Let someone know that, hey, there's this podcast out there with these crazy aviator Tony guy and his co-hosts and these guests. And 
you know, if, if you like what you hear, definitely we appreciate your feedback as well and your support. You can send us feedback either through our website at aviatortony.com or a lot of these podcast players have a feedback button that you can use. On the website at aviatortony.com, that's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com, you can find audio archives, photos from the flight line, the Squawk Ident Pilot Shop, guestbook photo tab, and under the Contact Us tab, you will find a link to something called SpeakPipe, and you can send us like a 90-second audio clip. Anything longer, record it on your phone, and just send us an email at aviatortony at gmail.com. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast. One final thank you to Captain Jerry Quint for sharing his wisdom with us today. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, y'all.